we have a, we live in an unbelievably violent world and i don't know that we are uh grappling with it effectively by hiding these facts as much as i think we are hello and welcome to the interview our weekly podcast featuring conversations with top figures in media and politics i'm ada mclaughlin your co-host and the editor-in-chief of media and I'm Diana Falzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. For this week's episode of The Interview, we are joined by CNN anchor Jake Tapper. Jake anchors the lead on CNN, which now occupies a two-hour stretch. He's also CNN's chief Washington correspondent, and he's the best-selling author of six books. His latest is the 1970s fiction thriller called All the Demons Are Here. Jake Tapper, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know this is a really busy week in news, uh, but thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. So the major news this week is, of course, the outbreak of violence in Israel, where Hamas launched a terror attack that has so far killed more than a thousand people, many of them civilians. Israel is now launching a siege in Gaza in response with its own horrific death toll. When you saw this news over the weekend and into this week and thought about how you were going to cover it on your show, what was the sort of overall understanding that you think that we should have about this conflict? Well, uh, I've you know I've, I've been covering this conflict for a long time, uh, and I guess there 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 are two different parts of it. One is there is what happened Saturday, uh, and that distinct event, and then separate and apart, almost in a way, is the stepping back and the greater context of the conflict. Um, but Saturday is an historical event it is you know it is uh first of all the deadliest day for the jewish people since the holocaust uh it was almost entirely purely terrorism acts of terror carried out against a civilian population um things that are in many ways to horrific to even describe on on in in news media some of the some of the the events and many of them we don't even know because of the because of how many people were killed and also because of the hostages that the hostages that have been taken um so there is almost a moral <clears throat> a moral clarity to what happened on on saturday not almost there is a moral clarity to what happened on saturday that is separate and distinct from whatever nuances and complications and historic issues there are with the larger Arab-Israeli conflict or, or Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. Um, so that's that's one, you know, whatever. I mean, for instance, the BBC does not even use the word terrorism to describe anyone, much less Al-Qaeda, much less Hamas. But I don't even think there's a debate, or at least in my view, there is not a debate about these acts that were taken on Saturday against civilians, against babies, against grandmas, against people that were just sleeping in their beds uh, at home. So that's one. And then two, separate and distinct from that is like now what happens, which is this war um, between Hamas and Israel. And I think as opposed to previous wars there is there is this i think that the attack on saturday has almost changed again not almost the attack on saturday has changed the paradigm i think 
for many in Israel, in the foreign policy community, et cetera, about Israel's response. Whereas in 2014, for example, when there was escalating violence between different communities, uh, Jewish and Palestinian, um, that led to horrific acts of violence against Palestinians, against Jews, against Israelis, uh, that resulted in innocent Israelis being killed, innocent Palestinians being killed, and and um, hundreds of people being being killed in that conflict. Uh, you know, there were questions about whether Israel's response was disproportionate to to what the Hamas had done. Um, and I think that the attacks on civilians in Israel were so beyond the pale. There is at least when you hear people on Capitol Hill talking or people in the Biden administration talking about it. There isn't really much debate about whether they feel Israel has a right to um, destroy Hamas, whether or not there is, you know, whether or not the United States would be called upon to do anything other than destroy a, a terrorist government right next door that would carry out such an attack. So I think that there, you know, and and we can, and then we can have that secondary, larger conversation about the horrific conditions that the Palestinian people have been living under in Gaza and the West Bank, and how the Israelis and the Israeli government have been have been dealing with uh, the West Bank and Gaza, and those are important conversations and absolutely connected to the story. And I don't want to pretend that they're not, but. Those two other stories are, I think, more immediate. Um, your colleague, Gabby Phillip, urged her followers on Twitter to not look away from some of the graphic videos and reporting we've seen on this. You had an interview with an Israeli woman whose grandmother was murdered by Hamas, and then a video of her killing was uploaded to Facebook. How important do you think it is for the media to tell those stories and show the full extent of the violence? So this is a this is an issue that I think a lot of journalists have been grappling with for, you know, decades. Um, in fact, um, I wrote a book about Afghanistan that came out in 2012, so 11 years ago. And at the, and at the front of the book, uh, I had a, a, a page about this because I grappled with how graphic to be just in writing, in description, hmm. not even images, with what happened in the battles uh, that dealt with this one outpost. How how detailed should I be when describing how an American soldier died? Uh, and I can in my brain, I, I'm thinking about one particular death, um, and thinking about his wife reading it. Right. And and the and uh, I ultimately decided to hold back some details, but not many, because I generally think that we in the media. Uh, and I'm not I'm talking about everyone and I'm talking about worldwide. Um, I think that we err on the side of not showing. Um, and I understand the reasons for it. I'm not unsympathetic to them. We want to be we want to be um, sensitive to the viewer. We want to be sensitive to the reader. We want to be sensitive to the listener. Sometimes just hearing these acts is 
heartbreaking and traumatic. Um, we don't want to be rude to the to the victims or their families. Um, sometimes it can be viewed as exploitative or, or sensational. Um, I described uh, a, a rape victim um, the other day, and I think that just descri- describing it might have might have been something that brought the National Security Council spokesman uh, Admiral Kirby to, to tears because I think he had seen the same video. And I wasn't trying to be sensationalistic, but somebody accused me of being sensationalistic. I wasn't trying to be. I was just, the image just stuck with me. It was a woman whose pants were stained. And it occurred to me later that they were stained because she'd been raped. Repeatedly, probably. And so I, I get I, I get all the concerns, but I just generally think we censor too much. And I, I understand why we do, but like... I just think that people would make more informed decisions if we uh, shared more, whether it's about violence in the United States or violence abroad. And maybe there are, you know, maybe it's like after nine o'clock p.m. we show more. Or you know, maybe there are ways that we can, as a society, do it. Or maybe like we have a section of the newspaper, or you know, whatever. But I just think that there needs to be some sort of adult way we can deal with these issues because I don't think that our, our, we have, we live in an unbelievably violent world and I don't know that we are uh, grappling with it effectively by hiding these facts as much as I think we are. So that's a long answer. Um, And I, I think also, you know, conflicts abroad that maybe don't necessarily get the same amount of coverage as this one. Yeah, Americans have no idea how horrific they can be because the, the American media might not be showing it as much. So I, I agree. I do think it's important. Yeah, well, th- and think about the the um, the fact that we don't necessarily uh, see the humanity mm-hmm. in other people because they don't look like us, right? Right. When they're the same as us, they're separated from us by like point oh 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 one percent of <laughs> DNA or whatever it is. Yeah. Um. And, you know, anyway, yes. Well, thank you. You had an incredible interview yesterday with a Palestinian American woman trapped in Gaza with her three young children. She said there was nowhere for her to go and you could hear the airstrikes throughout your interview with her. You made an appeal to the White House to help to get her out during the interview. Have you heard from the White House or gotten any updates on that, Jake? Um, I did hear from the White House. Uh, a little uh, confession that bef- that was a pre-taped interview mm-hmm. uh, a few minutes uh, before the show aired. And um, so I said all that. And then because I couldn't wait any longer, I, I sent her information to the White House ahead of time after I did the interview anyway. And then um, after it aired, somebody from the White House reached out to me, somebody who I had not sent the information to already. And I said, oh, I already sent it to X and Y and Z. And um, so I don't you know, I don't have an update uh, about her well-being. And I imagine that they you know, there are a lot of Palestinian Americans. And I imagine that there are a number of them who are trapped right now um, who, you know, did not. It's not really very easy to come and go in Gaza anyway, um, much less, you know, after there's a sneak attack uh, and all of a sudden it's really tough. To come and go. My understanding, based on just something that um, the National Security Advisor said at a press briefing, 
on um, Tuesday is that uh, they are working with the Israelis and the Egyptians on trying to get some sort of escape route for um, the innocent civilians uh, who are who are in Gaza. Uh, you know, I, I guess the expectation being that the the people in Hamas who want to fight uh, are going to stay and fight. Uh, I suppose I don't I don't really have a line into their thinking, but no, no updates yet. But I mean, certainly the humanity of the innocent people who have been killed um, is not uh, or or who are under threat uh, is not um, unique uh, to the Israelis, even though um, they were the ones who were you know, primarily victimized uh, or only victimized on, on Saturday. Right. I mean, we, we've seen Americans in in Israel, who are having trouble getting out now? So oh yeah, because it's, it's, it's for all the all the yeah all the airlines are are canceling right. flights. Yeah, and your, your your interview demonstrated that you know Israel's claim that civilians in Hamas can shelter either in the south of the Strip or by the shore is not necessarily true or helpful to to the people there. And there are more than two million people in Gaza. Are right. are you worried about the next phase of the conflict? And what are you looking for to to report on as as we move into that phase? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want innocent people to die anywhere, just as a right. human. Um, I also recognize that uh, uh, Israel is in a u- unique position where, I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, that's thankfully that's not my job. I mean, I ask the questions. I don't know what the you know. I have been asking. I asked both the chair and the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. You know, obviously Israel's going to respond to this. Um, how do they do it and not kill innocent people? Um, the Israeli defense forces say Hamas is embedded within the population. IDF says they do it on purpose. Um, so how do they how do they target and not kill innocent people? Obviously, obviously we've seen the images from Gaza, and innocent people have been killed. Um, I mean, all week, all I can do as a journalist is report on it, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't think the life an innocent child killed is, is an innocent child killed. I mean, that's that's how I look at it. Right. Right. I'm curious what you make of coverage that we've seen in the last couple of days from some journalists. I think primarily it's been on on MSNBC that people have been focusing on it, who have sought to put the violence into context by giving the history of the conflict, which is something you noted at the top there that that is an, an important thing to look at. But critics of that coverage have argued that doing so blames Israel for the atrocities that were inflicted on its people by Hamas over the weekend. What do you make of that debate about where context has a place when reporting on this news? I mean, there is a context to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Um, but I don't think there's any justification for killing babies and raping women. I mean, I, you know, there are rules of war and civilian populations and, and targeting civilian populations with war crimes are not part of that. Now, people can say, well, the Israelis do this or the Israelis do that. And, you know, I've certainly asked tough questions of Israelis and, you know, I can point people to those interviews if they want, but that's not the point. This isn't a playground argument. This is, you know, a thousand Israelis, most of them civilians being targeted and slaughtered 
And there's no context that justifies that. There just isn't. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm all for historical context in terms of larger um, lar- coverage of a larger war. But I don't think when bodies are still warm that uh, in, the, in the most horrific act of, of, of violence against the Jewish people since the Holocaust, I don't I think that stepping back at that moment I think you run the risk of seeming as if you are trying to justify something that I am guessing nobody was actually trying to justify. And right. um, and so these things have to be covered uh, very, very. Look, all acts of violence against civilians need to be covered in a very, very sensitive way to the civilians. Uh, and and. Um, there's always going to be time for context in terms of larger issues. But like one of the things that is not helpful is to blame civilians for acts of their government. I mean, there was plenty of time. Weeks and months after 9-11 to talk about the United States and its role in the world. But that didn't that never justified anything that happened to the innocent people killed on 9-11. It might have been relevant in some geopolitical way for a discussion far, far down the road. It certainly was not something that anybody wanted to talk about on September 12th. You make a very good point. Does that make sense? I mean, I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. Um, You know, looking about the news gathering as as this horrific event happened on Saturday, you're on X, the platform once known as Twitter, which has always been a place to get footage and real time info on. on Well, it was. Well, yeah. (laughs) And the platform has obviously changed enormously since Elon Musk took over. What do you think of Twitter as this conflict was unfolding? Was it still a useful news gathering tool? No, no. The changes um, that Elon Musk has made with all due respect, uh, have made it a worse source of information. He has taken away the verification of credible news sources that are vetted. He has boosted unreliable sources of information, both through the purchase of blue checks and also by personally vouching for unreliable sources of information, some of whom are unrepentant bigots. One of the first things he did was boost a source that was openly anti-Semitic, that would call people Jew um, in a pejorative way. Uh, a tweet that he later untweeted, but never said anything else about. Um, we saw plenty of video of, you know, from wars past, not even Middle East wars. I think there was like some demolition of a building in China that was like purported to be from Gaza. No, he is. I mean, look, social media. News media is not perfect, period. But there is at least an attempt. Checks um, and balances to an accountability. Yes. Um, Social media is even farther from perfect than news media. But he has the changes that have been made uh, have made it have made X far, far less reliable than it used to be. And that is a real shame. Um, 
And look, I went into the Musk experiment with an open mind. I think he is an interest. I am not anti Elon Musk, like as a knee jerk position. I think he has done fascinating things with electric cars. I think SpaceX is interesting. I, I, I you know, as I, he's not actually a, a free speech advocate, but I have uh, a, a, an, I have a knee jerk uh, interest in free speech as a, as an idea. I, I think, Executing it without it becoming a cesspool is is a different thing. Um, But I've been really disappointed um, because it's just like Twitter was much, much better um, two or three years ago. And like I saw plenty of problems with the old regime. And like I heard I heard a lot of the complaints from conservatives and agreed with many of them. But it's hard to look at it now and think it's better. It's not. It's worse. And especially at times like this, um, there really just isn't a social media platform to go to um, where you can find reliable information. Twi- threads threads is, is probably the best, but like I just find its interface not as good. Right. And it doesn't have the central mass. No, it doesn't have I, I still don't even understand it. what I'm following or who right, I'm following. Exactly. Uh, like I'm like I'm like I'm reading tweets from people I don't know and I don't like. No, yeah. I, I I stopped following this person like ten years ago on Twitter. Why am I seeing? <laughs> yeah. You know. But no, I'm I'm consistently shocked by the the low quality of the accounts that Elon Musk boosts on Twitter. They are almost always accounts that post false information more than anything. It's it's crazy, and it means that my like for you tab is just absolutely wrecked. I mean, it's useless. no, it's awful, and um, and yeah, I mean, look. Let's just put it this way. He is not to social media what he is to space exploration and electric vehicles. And I wish he were. (laughs) Now, one one of the most valuable things about CNN, speaking of a, a, a good source of news on something like this, is that CNN has always had and and it, and it currently has, I think, the mightiest international reporting operation of of many of the news outlets, certainly of of cable news networks. Yeah, and that Other means BBC. I don't think it, I mean uh, of American rivals. I don't yeah. think it's even close. Yeah. yeah, and so that means that when a major conflict like this one breaks out, we get incredible reporting from the ground about what's going on. But as you know, you know, speaking of the industry, cable news is in a tough spot right now. The future viability of the model is a big question. Are you worried about a place like CNN being able to sustain a robust international news operation in the future? I'm not because of two reasons. One, it is so much a part of our DNA and so such a vital part of who we are. Uh, and uh, Sir Mark Thompson, our new boss, comes from the BBC and is a newsman through and through and understands that we are this. This is such a vital part of who we are, and we're not going to survive to whatever we become in the next incarnation or in the in the in the new world uh, by cutting all those bureaus because that's when we are our most vital. Mm. Um, at times like this, at times like the war in Ukraine. So that's one. And two, because of Sir Mark Thompson, because he is the guy to get us onto the next, you know, as the plate tectonics are shifting, he is the person that knows how to do that. That is his jam. 
he and got he the, New York, Times, the New York Times. Yeah, right. he got the New York Times from paper to digital without screwing the paper with, you know, mm-hmm. going going to the paper people and saying, we're not getting rid of you. We'll do whatever we need to keep you thriving. Don't worry about that. But we need to also do this. And um, so the fact that that he is in charge makes me think, OK, good. We have somebody who understands that <laughs> I don't see any, you know, it's not as though anyone else is doing it better uh, or anyone else has figured it out. I'm glad we have our captain of our ship to take us to where we're going. And um, I mean, he's the right one to do it. So we'll get there. And and uh, if anyone's going to figure it out, it's him. Right. Right. You have an optimistic view. Jake, you broke a major scoop last week. John Kelly, former White House chief of staff, finally confirmed publicly a 2020 report from The Atlantic that said Trump, who was president at the time, made derogatory remarks about military veterans. At the time, the sourcing of the report was unknown and the Trump White House denied it. Why do you think Kelly came forward now? And why did he wait so long to confirm this reporting that the White House and a lot of people in conservative media outright denied as false? I I can only speculate, Um, Mm -hmm. but my speculation would be that he that he was very reluctant to do so publicly because um, as a former general, he's very reluctant to criticize a commander in chief publicly. And I would think that. Why he did it is because of the. discussion about executing uh, General Milley, that that was just a last straw. And um, I had been trying to get him to go on the record for quite some time uh, with his his views, as had, I'm sure, lots of journalists. And I think maybe I just got him at the right time. Uh, And he was just so upset because he not only saw what President Trump, what former President Trump said about Milley as beyond the pale, but he saw it as a call from Trump, as he makes clear in the statement, a call from Trump for one of his followers to act, to act on the the call for an execution, for an an assassination, basically. That's what he saw it as. So I think that was just so upsetting that he uh, that he went on the record. And what do you think, you know, I know you talk to a lot of these these people. What do you think it says about Trump that so many of the people that served in his administration including very well-respected generals like John Kelly, are warning that Trump is a danger to the country. And does that make you concerned about what a second Trump administration would look like? Well, I mean, I think the question answer itself in terms of what does it say about Trump? Right. You know, what what does it say about, uh, what does it say about a Hollywood celebrity if 10 of his ex-wives accuse him of beating them up? I mean, you know, I, I don't, do I have to answer that question? Really? I mean, like it, it, it says what it says. Um, I think it's less obvious to a lot of people than what, it should be. I mean, I, I and in terms of uh, of, uh, you know, what what are my concerns for uh, a second Trump term? I mean, I, I think that just stating facts we hear from any number of former Trump administration officials that they are concerned that Trump would try to destroy democratic institutions and democratic norms and indeed democracy itself. I mean, that's what they are saying. My opinion doesn't even matter. People who know him well, who worked with him, 
from Cassidy Hutchinson to Attorney General Barr to Mark Esper to, you know, General Kelly. I mean, they're the ones whose opinions matter, and they're stating it very clearly what they think it would mean. I What I have said before is it's called the American experiment. It's not called the American proven theorem. It's an experiment. We will see if it works. Right now, it's being tested. I don't know that it's going to work. I mean, there were a lot of election deniers who made it clear that they did not respect democracy and the idea of the person with the most votes wins the election on the ballot in 2022. And in the battleground states on the statewide level, they lost. But in individual races, in congressional districts, they won. So we'll see what happens. I mean, it says Congressman Steve Scalise wins the GOP nomination for House Speaker. That's what the it's a Wednesday right now as we tape this. It's 1.32 p.m. Eastern time. And that's that's what the news is. And, you know. Jim Jordan was discussed as, you know, maybe he was going to win the speaker race. And he certainly was you know, Liz Cheney. Congresswoman Liz Cheney was was warning that he was a you know major conspirator uh, when it came to trying to overturn the election. Um, and he would be a real danger. But Steve Scalise also spread the election lies and voted to disenfranchise the voters of Pennsylvania and Arizona. So, you know, he was insurrection-ish. Um, that's where we are. That's Tough time for the party. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's troubling times uh, in our world and uh, stateside as well. Jake, thank you so much for your powerful insight and your reporting. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my, Thanks, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Anytime. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube. And check out coverage of our conversation with Jake Tapper on Mediaite.com. Oh,